turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra 3. Last week we were looking at obviously chapter 2. And uh, in that chapter we saw that the, the idea was that the people of God testify. Just a list of names, a lot of numbers, a lot of families listed. Nevertheless, within that uh, within that chapter, you can see there was a testimony, a silent one, from the people of God. They testified to God's faithfulness in bringing them back to the land. Tremendous thing. They testified to his purpose, which was bringing them back for the purpose of worship in that chapter. They testified to his purity. That is, the spiritual leaders in Israel had to be qualified. You couldn't just have anybody do that job. We, they, said, we saw they testified to his provision. God provided for his people's needs in that transition period. Chapter 2, the people of God testify. In Ezra chapter 3, the people of God will find will worship. They're going to worship. Now, I would not be out of bounds if I said that the primary reason for God bringing his people back to Israel after the Babylonian captivity was not for a bunch of other reasons. It was for this reason, to worship him according to the prescribed manner of the Mosaic Law, to worship in that manner. Now, when they were in Babylon, they were there for some 70 years, they could not carry out their practice of worshiping God according to the prescribed manner of Old Testament law. They could not do it to the full extent. Sure, they could seek God, of course. You see Daniel seeking God in, in, uh, in Daniel chapter 9. But they could not worship him just with the exact specifications according to the law, that was laid down in the law of God. You couldn't do that in Babylon like they, like they could in Jerusalem. They didn't have a temple. They couldn't carry out their sacrificial system and, and all these things. Not to mention the fact, now there are Babylonian texts that talk about 50 t different temples being in Babylon in that time. 50. There was, for the purpose of worshiping false gods, there were 180 shrines to the god Ishtar alone, there were about 1,500 thrones dedicated to all kinds of false gods. So they're, imagine that. They're in Babylon. They're surrounded with this pagan culture, surrounded with pagan religion everywhere. They're not, being, they're not able to worship like they want to, like they should, like God wants them to. So God brings them back to the land. And chapter 1, they're going back to rebuild the temple. We see their number one priority in going back was nothing more than this, to worship God, to worship God in his own way, the way he wanted them to. Now, their priority was not their own comfort in going back. Because they're back in the land, now we can relax, we're back home. That's not why they were that back there. Their, their priority in going back was not the pursuit of pleasure. Now we can chill out and do what we want. It wasn't an attitude of complacency. You know, now, later on in Ezra, we're going to see a problem of misplaced priorities, but not at the, at the beginning. We're going to see people worshiping. Right at the start, they get serious about the worship of God. Now, they had, to have, they had to establish living conditions again. They go back to a land where there's destruction and mayhem everywhere because of Babylonians coming in and attacking them and all this. So they have to establish living quarters somehow. Look at chapter 2, verse 70. Now, the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, lived in their cities. All Israel lived in their cities. So they had to establish living quarters somehow. You can imagine go back and rebuild just to live somehow. And now, we don't know how long that took. It's a matter of debate. Some say it took a year for that to happen. Some say it took a few weeks. Uh, we're never going to make that determination because it doesn't tell us. However, they, one thing we can determine from the text of chapter 2 and chapter 3 
is that, and that the stress is on worship. The people came back to do the thing that they, that they were meant to do, and that is worship God. Now, how do they show this in chapter 3? Well, first of all, you'll notice they were unified for the purpose of worship. They were unified for the purpose of worship. Look at verse 1. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in their cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Notice that phrase. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose. Notice that, those terms, brothers. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, I do not believe I am overreaching when I say that, that, that verse 1 puts it this way, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. I do not believe I'm over, overreaching when I say they were gathered together for the, to, to be unified for the purpose of worship. They were in unity as one man, it says very clearly. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8 again, verse 1, and when they're gathering together, they're doing so for the singular purpose of worshiping God. That's why they're here. That's what chapter 3 is all about. Worship. And I don't think I could find a better description than this. They all come together after they settle down. What do they do? They gather together in Jerusalem as one man for the purpose of worshiping God. Now, we know they want to rebuild the temple. Chapter 1, Cyrus the king says, I want you guys to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Cyrus, king of Persia, where they had been staying after he conquered Babylon, he sends them back. But this is more than just about a building. Worship is never about a building. Some people think it is about a building. Some people, when we were at the ballroom, thought it was about a building. That's why they didn't stay there. It's more than about a building. The, re the reason they're going to build the temple is, to, is because they want to reestablish worship. This is pointing to worship, ultimately. That's what they were intent on. Notice they did not get sidetracked. <laughs> as soon as they get there, Gather together as one man in Jerusalem. Let's get at it. And they all go at it, right, to build this thing. They don't get sidetracked. They don't get distracted from what's the most important pursuit. They don't major on the minors. They didn't get involved with a pursuit that seemed to be worthy, but, you know, some causes seemed to be worthy, but not as important as the cause of worship. They did not lose sight of their goal, which was to worship God. That's what they did. Notice the seventh month had come in verse 1. Seventh month, very important month. The Jews called that month Tishri. We call it September slash October, kind of half and half of both those months. Very important month uh, in, the, in the Jewish calendar. A lot of things happened in that month. It was their, the Jewish New Year took place in that month. Uh, also, the, the Feast of Trumpets took place. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, took place. Feast of Tabernacles will take place. It's a big month. Verse 2 tells us that the two main leaders of Judah are taking charge of this whole project. There's the spiritual leader, Jeshua. He's the high priest. He's there. And then you have Zerubbabel, the civil leader. And along with these guys, you have their associates. You have other priests. You have associates that are with them. You have the leadership with them. What do they do? They arise and they build the altar of the God of Israel. You know, that's what leaders do, right? They lead Somebody's got to take the initiative. These guys who are leaders took the initiative. They, and where spiritual leadership is lacking, by the way, spiritual priorities are at a risk. You know, in a church, you want to focus on the priorities. What's the priority in a church? What is it? To worship God, right? To follow Christ, to do things the way the New Testament says to do things. And yet so many people, Mike can tell, tell you this, 
are, are always trying through the years, try to take you off that path. So let's focus on this. Let's focus on that. No, let's focus on Christ. Let's keep, keep the focus where it belongs. And these guys lead in the task of building the altar. And a picture begins to emerge of people who are in total unity. Can you imagine this? you got 50,000 people here that came back almost. Total unity. Can you imagine that? Think about that for a minute. When have, when have you ever seen 50,000 people in total unity on anything? How about five people? 5,000 people, 500. And yet they're unified for this one purpose, worship, right? Now that's always a great purpose, a blessing rather, when the leadership and the people are together, moving forward, especially when it comes to worship. The problem in America is everybody's independent, right? You know, I want my own way, and so that spills over into the church. We, you know, we're Americans in this church, so we bring our independent thinking with us, and we, we, we don't see things in unity often. We think about, how would I like to see things done in the church? That's what we see. We see what do I want done in a church? How do I want worship conducted in a church? You know, who's here to meet my needs? We've heard all these things. What appeals to me? Uh, too many times. Why can't our services have the, the music that I want? And you hear these things again and again. That's a far cry from the mentality we see in Ezra, Ezra 3. You don't see that in Ezra 3. It's also not the message you get from the New Testament. You don't see that in the New Testament either. The Bible puts the focus on Christ first and foremost, not on us. It's always on Him. Always on Him. If we could see that we're, just here, for, we're here just for Him. We're here for Him. As I said before, Recently, in Colossians 1.16, all things have been created by Christ and for Him, okay? That's why we're created. Everything is for Him. We're here for Him. We're here to worship Him. We need a unity of purpose that finds its common denominator in worshiping the Lord. That's what we're gathered around. That's what the focus is. That's what the singular purpose is. All else is secondary. Now, the early church in Acts, turn to Acts chapter 2. They were such an example of unity. Now, you've, you've heard this passage, you've read this passage many times, but I want to read it again. To show the description of unity that is found in the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, these people in, in the early church, they were continually, think about these words, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now, we're not in the day of Pentecost here. I realize that will never be repeated. Nevertheless, the idea, the, the, the spirit here. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were together. Together, had all things in common. They, they weren't thinking about themselves. And when they began selling their property and possessions, they were sharing them, them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with what? One mind, right? One mind in the temple, still in the temple at this time, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. Lord was adding the church daily, such should be saved. And so they are there for their, their unit. This is the kind of church we want. Church is unselfish. Church is unified. Church is focused on the goal of worshiping Christ. A church is seeking the Lord. A church is giving praise to God. Everybody's involved. Everybody's involved in Acts. Everybody's involved in Ezra 3. Everybody is focused on the same object of worship. In our church, everybody should be 
focused on where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, right? People are not doing their own thing. You know, everybody has the mentality that, you know, they're, they're think, we're thinking like Jesus who said this, I must be about my father's business. That's what this is all about, the father's business. Also, this was Paul's wish, Romans 15, Romans 15, 5 and 6, I read this before, says this, and I'll just read it to you, Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind, same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord, notice the emphasis again and again, with, that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the unity of purpose these people had, coming together to worship God. That's what it was all about. Secondly, their worship revealed their deep need of the Lord. Their worship revealed their deep need of the Lord. And this is exactly why the Lord designed worship like he did in the Old Testament, so that they would see how deeply they, they needed the Lord. And not only their spiritual needs, but also physical needs. You know, he wanted the, the nation of Israel constantly read about the offerings. He wanted them to constantly and daily focus on him uh, every day. He wanted them to see their need, their, their need of, of having their sins cleansed and forgiven. That's a big one right there, their daily need for that. And I want to point out two activities in this chapter that focus on worship. No, number one, the altar of burnt offering. Look at verse 2. It says they offered, these guys got together, they built the altar of God to offer burnt offerings on it. Verse 3, they set up the altar on its foundation, it says. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. That's what they did first. They, they built the altar of burnt offering. Now, as I said earlier, the purpose for, for rebuilding, uh, for coming, was to rebuild the temple. Uh, that was their purpose. However, they did, they did not start with the building of the temple itself. They started with the, the altar of God, it says here, uh, called the altar of burnt offerings, also, also called the bronze altar in other places in the Bible. This was the place where priests would offer animal sacrifices. That's what they did. Remember Solomon, when he dedicated the first temple, offered all kinds of sacrifices on it, and he had to build an extra altar for this purpose. It had so many sacrifices. That's what these people are going to do, offer animal sacrifices. Blood's going to be shed, blood everywhere. Many sacrifices. Peter would not be happy with this setup had they been back in his time. But many sacrifices. Why? Because as Stephen said in Hebrews 9.22, and he pointed out to us this, without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. No forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And this is the fundamental purpose in worship, to deal with our sin. This is the first thing that's got to be dealt with. And, and the thing that's got to be dealt with daily, sin. When we approach the Lord, we've got to deal with our sin. If we don't deal with our sin and we're trying to worship at the same time, that doesn't work. You can't tolerate sin and worship God at the same time. God's holiness demands that sin be forgiven. Now, you know, when we look at the Old Testament, we know that the Old Testament sacrifices were temporary. They weren't permanent, and they pointed to what? The final sacrifice, right? The perfect sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice, which was Christ. And because he took our place on the cross as our substitute for the judgment for our sin, we are saved. He saved us from our sins. He met, and thus, he met the deepest need of our life, of our soul, the need to have our sins forgiven and cleansed. He brought us out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. He dealt with that. And as a result, we're able to do what Hebrews, and I'll read this to you, what Hebrews 10 says. 
Hebrews 10.19 says this, just listen to this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus made it possible for us to enter the holy place to connect with the Father. He did this by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. He died and his his body made this possible. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near to God now because we have this great priest, Christ. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so God gave us Christ to make us right with him. He took care of the sin problem. And so when we continue to worship corporately, privately, we come to him and we confess our sins, right? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so he dealt with sin. That's the altar of burnt offering. Speaks to that. And then notice the second activity, the Feast of Booths. Look at verse 4. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required, Afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons, for the, all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. Now, the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, you can read about that in Exodus, Leviticus, was one of three festivals that Israel had every year that they had to attend. It fell in the seventh month. For seven days, they would celebrate this festival. This is after the final harvest came in. And for seven days, think about this. <clears throat> they had to leave their, where they lived and had to live in temporary shelters. Just makeshift shelters, shelters like lean-tos, huts that they would build, and they would, leave, they would stay in that for seven days. Imagine, bring it to our t- imagine staying in a tent for seven days. Get out of your house, okay, in this state, in the summertime. Get out of your house. <laughs> I don't know what the, what the weather was like. Get out of your house and go in a tent for seven days, and, and stay in those conditions, and, and then come back and talk to me, okay? Actually, we did that one time. In, the, in July, we did it in North Carolina, in the mountains, though. It was, it was nice, <laughs> nice and cool. But imagine doing that. That was designed by God to be a reminder of how it was in the wilderness. I'm talking to Americans who are like looking at me funny, because what are you talking about? We live in nice houses with nice air conditioner and nice cars and nice everything, right? But this was a reminder to Israel to say, hey, you remember you guys stayed in the wilderness all this time and I brought you out of Egypt and I, I took care of you. You were traveling along the way in the wilderness and they, you weren't living high on the hog. Their very existence depended upon the Lord. During that time, they were totally dependent upon him. He gave them manna from heaven. Remember that? They complained about that even. But even in the rebellion, the Lord took care of them. They needed to be reminded of that. They needed to be reminded that God met their needs. Every year, they were reminded of that. Now, in America, as I said, we take everything for granted, right? We, people, we feel like we're owed something more than we already have. And, uh, you know, you go to a foreign country, and you see a third world nation, and you see the difference already, automatically. They don't have what we have here. You can't just go to the water fountain and drink water. You know, that's a bad, bad idea, okay? You can't just have air conditioning necessarily, depending on where you go. I wish, in a way, we still had that Feast of Tabernacles today. We don't have that anymore, by the way. That's done, done away with, okay? In a way, it would be good for us to have to do that, to think about, man, God really does take care of us. Think of all the blessings we have. We should at least reflect upon these things, and when we go to worship God, thank Him for all the blessings He's given us because we're totally dependent upon Him. 
And when we worship God, we realize all our deepest needs are met by him. Thirdly, they were driven to worship by their circumstances, verse 3. These people were literally driven to worship by their circumstances. We know they were there to worship anyway. But, and although they, the remnant that came back were backed by the good promises of God, we saw that in chapter 1, they were led by the sovereign direction of God. We saw that Cyrus the king gave the decree for them to go back. All these things were true. Nevertheless, not everybody was in a mood to throw out the welcome mat to the returnees, okay? Not everybody's happy about this. It says, look at verse 3, they set up the altar on its foundation, their, its original foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. Terrified. Literally, terror was upon them. The remnant, back in the land now, back in their homeland of Israel, is afraid. Isn't that strange to be back in your... You know, you, if you live away from your hometown, you, you look forward to going back to your hometown periodically. Hey, this is where I grew up. This is my hometown. But can you imagine going back and now you're afraid? You're afraid of the people that live there? It says they're afraid because of the peoples of the lands. The peoples of the lands were people who, you know, when Assyria came in northern kingdom of Israel and, and deported them away, and then, then Babylon came in to Judah and deported them away, guess what they did? They, they did it like a trade, a swap. They brought in uh, foreigners to live in Israel. So you have all these foreign people living in Israel. They don't know who God is. They don't know the true God of Israel. They have all these strange practices and Maybe some of the poor Jews that were left behind intermarried with them, and you have all this mix of people, all these strangers in, in the land now, and, and now these people are presented as the enemy of God, these peoples of the lands. They don't know who God is, and so the returnees come back to see this situation. They're afraid of possible repercussions because if they worship God and they set up an altar, maybe that's going to, you know, these people are going to get up, or be upset because they're hostile and we're going to see in future tra chapters that they are hostile. This hostility is real. So what do they do? What would you do? Imagine you're the remnant. You go back. You're faced with this, looking around, wondering, what are these people going to, how are they going to respond to us? Did they forego the whole project because they didn't want to upset people because of their religious convictions? Is that what they said? Forget it. It's not going to work. No, it says here, they set up the altar on its foundation. For, or because, they were terrified of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on the, to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. You know what they did? They received an unexpected motivation, fear. Now, let me ask you a question. Is fear a motivation to worship the Lord? You bet it is. It's a good and proper motivation. It's all through the scriptures that says it. It says everywhere that the scripture repeatedly tells us that we should let fear turn us to who? To the Lord, right? Fear, our fear should drive us to the Lord. Psalm 56.3, I always think of this one first. Psalm 56.3, when I am afraid, or the time, how I memorized in the King James, at what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, what do you do when you're afraid? Just let the fears go and let it develop in your mind and cause you anxiety and problems and frustrations? Psalm says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from what? From all my fears. I sought him. Doesn't mean you're not going to have problems, but he delivered the psalmist from his fears. Psalm 46, 1 and 2. This is Martin Luther's psalm. Well, this is one of his psalms. He loved all the psalms. 
Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. You ever been in an earthquake? Something like that? Even though bad things are happening, we will not fear because we're trusting in God. That's why. When we are afraid, we're instructed to go to the Lord, turn to him. King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we talked about this, I don't know when. When he was afraid, because the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem, or that area, when he was afraid of this, he tore his clothes and he covered himself. And they were threatening. They were threatening to come and destroy Jerusalem. Syrian army was mighty and powerful. Everybody was afraid of them. They were brutal. He was afraid. He tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sent a message to Isaiah the prophet. Hey, Isaiah, would you pray for us, please? Now, if you want someone to pray for you and you have Isaiah the prophet around, you're going to give him your prayer request, right? Pray for us because we are in serious trouble here. And Isaiah sent the message back to Hezekiah and he said this, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, because God, you're trusting, in, you know, put your trust in God. And what happened? The Lord all but wiped out the army of the Assyrians. Our fears and worries and frustrations should not drive us away from the Lord, just the opposite. They should drive us to the Lord. And that's, that's all the more reason to worship Him. You know, certain countries, there's Christians that, that are persecuted for their faith, and they're, they are afraid to openly worship. It's against the law of the land, so they have underground churches they worship in. And if they get caught, they know they're going to be persecuted. And we've talked to some of these people. We've met them personally. And I'm sure in those countries, think about this, if you were in those countries, there are believers who are afraid. Afraid they'll get caught. And yet what do they do? They worship in underground churches. Their fears are driving them to worship the Lord. That's what they're doing. And their fears are, are taking them to the Lord. That's how the returnees handled this. They were driven to worship by their circumstances. You've got circumstances like this, let it drive you to the Lord. Number four, their worship was governed by a higher authority. Their worship was governed by a higher authority. Look at uh, those phrases used twice in this section. Look at verse 2 at the end of the verse. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer up burnt offerings on it. What does it say next? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 4, they celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written, just like it's written in the scriptures, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings, the exact number they were told to offer daily, according to the ordinance. That is the scriptures. In other words, everything they did in the way of worship was based on the scripture. They wanted to worship, that's why they came back to the land, to worship according to the scripture, the way it said to worship. They went back to the law of Moses, and they did everything exactly as it said, exactly as it was lined up in God's word. They offered burnt offerings. They had the morning and evening sacrifice. Why did they do that? Because Exodus 29 says to do that, and they did it. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in the exact manner prescribed by the law, just like it's said to do. Everything they did, the festivals, new moon, it says, all carried out in accordance with the scriptures. Everything they did was based on the word of God. Now, you've heard of people who say, that guy does everything by the book. Maybe you've heard this at your job. He does everything by the book, okay? He's, he's a by-the-book guy. Well, these people were conducted their worship by the book, okay? By the word of God, by that book. They did not worship according to their preference, their own preferences. They did not have a self-styled worship. They did not come up with an innovative worship. 
Nobody did what was right in his, eyes, in his own eyes when it came to worship. They saw enough of that in Babylon. They saw enough of it in their own land before the Babylonian captivity, people doing what was right in their own eyes in the way of worship. And if you think that's only an Old Testament problem, you'd be mistaken. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. For example, in the church at Colossae, it's a New Testament problem. Paul's always talking about problems in, in the New Testament. In, in the church at Colossae, there was a heresy taking hold of that church and actually three churches that were in that area. That, that philosophy departed from a Christ-honoring worship to a man-centered worship. That was the idea behind this philosophy. And Paul warns them of the spiritual danger they face in this epistle. And he says, hey, Christ is preeminent. He says Christ is preeminent. Worship him. Look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. He goes on to say this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. These guys were doing that as uh, Colossian heresy. An empty deception according to the tradition of what? Men, right? These guys do what they do based on the tradition of men. It's a man-made philosophy. According to the elementary principles of the world, and not literally according to Christ. What they're doing is not according to Christ or his words, according to their own thoughts. Look at verse 18. Let no one, Paul says, keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels. These guys are worshiping angels, uh, taking his stand. They're having visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. These people are not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, not holding to Christ, the head of the church, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? They're getting into legalism. Oh, you can't do this. Here's a bunch of rules and regulations we're going to lay down for worship now. Here's how you do it according to our standards. He says, why are you guys letting yourself, why are you submitting to these decrees of men, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Verse 23 these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, it looks good, and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The Colossian church was, in, was, in, was being besieged by a heresy that taught you worship angels, you devalue Christ, he's not all that important. He's secondary to what we're doing here. Uh, we have ascetic practices. In other words, we treat, treat our body severely. We make it tough on our own person because we think this is the way to true spiritual growth if you do that. Uh, but we worship angels, but it only appeared to be worship. Doesn't it look good? You know, a lot of churches, they, they look like they're worshipful places, right? They have stained glass windows. Why don't we have stained glass windows here? We don't have much in the way of windows here anyway. You know, they have stained glass windows, they have statues, they have all this stuff. It all looks worshipful, right? We just, Mike and I just went to a Catholic church recently, not to attend services there. We actually bought some chairs from there. Probably shouldn't have told them that. <laughs> because they had them on sale. <laughs> so we were, we were low enough to humble ourselves to go to do this. Anyway, you know, you go there and you see the new statue of Mary being built by the construction guys who are out there doing this. Well, what are these construction guys doing? Building a new statue of Mary. Oh, wow, okay. You see all the paraphernalia, you know, there. you walk up, you go up to the entrance, and there's a lion, a, bron a, a lion made out of, I don't know what he was made out of, bronze or something, on a sign with, with eagle wings. I thought, wow, it looks like that a revelation or something. And 
All this. It looks really worshipful. looks very uh, special. Looks, it looks you know, like you want to engage in worship, right? But it's all man-made, based on man-made philosophies, man-made traditions, all this stuff. So this, this problem that Colossians, Colossians had is nothing, was nothing that's not around today. What about the present time? Old Testament had problems with worship. New Testament had problems with the right kind of worship. You, so we're clear of that today, right? There's no problems within churches today, right? Are people today who claim to be Christians truly worshiping the way the scriptures say to? Truly honoring God the Father, Son, and the Spirit the way that God says to? I can't say that they are. Many churches are doing exactly what they want to, exactly as they please. They're caught up in this church growth movement, you know? And the principles of that, they're caught up in uh, appealing to the flesh. They preach positive thinking messages. And they preach to people to feel good about themselves. And they appeal to their sense of entertainment. And so what do we have now? We have churches filled with tares instead of wheat, right? Because of of what's going on. And all because I want to have a megachurch. Got to have a megachurch. Therefore, let's let worship be what the people want. Not what the scriptures say, right? I tell you what, I've about had a, a uh, headache the last two weeks thinking about this guy, Andy Stanley, up in, I guess he's in Georgia somewhere, who's got a massive followers, and I guess uh, one of these deals where you have a lot of uh, satellite campuses, I guess, and that kind of stuff, and a lot of people follow him. I have no idea how any Christian could follow this guy, by the way. I'm just, you know, we're talking about the Word of God being our guidebook for conducting worship the way that pleases God, right? And I'm not getting the impression that Anthony Stanley has the high view of, of Scripture. Now, unfortunately, he wrote another book. Now, the, so we're going to have to warn people about this book now, probably, because people come up and say, oh, did you read the latest book by Andy Stanley? And about and the guy, uh, what's his name? The guy in Houston, uh, Joel, Mike's favorite guy, Joel Osteen. Not his favorite guy. And all these guys, you know. And they'll come up to us, did you read the book about, no, don't read that book, okay? Please don't read that. Don't read The Shack. All these books come on. They don't read the Bible, but they read all these books, right? Why? I don't know. And so he wrote a book about expository preaching, Andy Stanley did back a while. And he says, don't, that's cheating. To have expository preaching is cheating, which I'm still not sure what he means by that. (laughs) So we should not be engaged in the type of preaching we're doing now where we put the Word of God front and center and we preach it in its context, verse by verse. We shouldn't be doing that. That's out of bounds. Andy doesn't like that. You can see he's already on the wrong, wrong track. Now he's got another book. Oh, boy, this one just, I just was uh, beyond myself, beside myself, beyond myself. I was out of the, it was an out-of-body experience like Paul had in 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, that didn't really happen, okay, for those of you who are viewing at home. But in this book, he makes a lot of strange statements, very strange. This is Andy Stanley. This is the, I'm not talking about Charles Stanley, his father. I'm talking about Andy, the son, okay? He says the problem with the church today, listen to this, is our incessant habit of reaching back into the Old Covenant, Old Testament, concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. I'm, I'm guessing he wouldn't like us going through the book of Ezra right now. Wouldn't be in favor of this. He says when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. If you want to stumble in your faith, read the Old Testament. Listen to this. He says, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. I had to quit reading this guy. I was like, you're kidding me, right? 
the son of Charles Stanley is saying all these bizarre things now. Apparently, Andy has no regard for three-quarters of the Bible, the Old Testament. You know, the one that Jesus constantly pointed to and said, have you never read the Old Testament? He says it again and again. Haven't you guys ever read the Old Testament? And the, the, the same Old Testament that Paul quotes from constantly is always going back to the Old Testament. The same Old Testament that the nine of the Ten Commandments are quoted from, the same Old Testament that Christ is prophesied in, uh, we could go on and on. This is not a book review, though. But that's why our churches are in such a mess today. We're talking about our, our worship being governed by the scriptures. We have voices that are loud and influential. People that are gullible and ignorant of the scriptures is the problem. Now, obviously, we don't offer sac animal sacrifices anymore. I'm not saying we do all that. We don't do that. We don't have a temple. We don't have all that. Christ fulfills many things. We know that. But that does not mean we are to unhitch from the Old Testament, as Andy Stanley says. He says we're to unhitch from the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I aim to hitch my wagon to both Old and New Testaments. Because the last time I checked, there were 66 books in the Bible, not 27. So I just, I had to put him aside. How do we know we're doing things right? How do we know we're worshiping right in our church? How do we know what we're doing here? And this church is, is proper and good and right in God's eyes. We go by the word of God. See what the scriptures say. We go by what it says. Are we worshiping in accordance with the scriptures? Is our question. Is the content of our preaching the scriptures? Are we living in accordance with the scriptures? Now, many churches may not want to abide by a higher authority, but we, this church must abide by a higher authority, and that higher authority is the word of God. That's what we're about here. Finally, their, their worship exalted the Lord. Their worship exalted the Lord. Look at verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brothers, the priests, Levites, and all who came from the captivity of Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Henadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God, the work getting underway. Verse 10, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, in the first part of this chapter, they're building the altar. That's the first thing they do. In the second half, they're going to build the foundation of the temple, not the total temple, but the foundation. Verse 6 reminds us that the foundation had not been laid. That's going to be remedied shortly. Verse 7, they begin to pay the masons and carpenters to start building. And they trade food for labor for the Sidonians and the Tyrians. Now, who are these guys, Sidonians and Tyrians? They're from Sidon and Tyre northwest of Israel, these are the same guys King Solomon used to build his temple to get the supplies. Same guys, they're Phoenicians. 
Why did they go to them? They're expert tree cutters. They had the best lumber around. You ever read in the Old Testament the phrase, cedars of Lebanon? That's the best lumber around. And so they want to get the, this lumber. They go to these guys. They do the same thing Solomon did. They trade food and the supplies to get their work. So these guys cut the lumber. They ship it down to Joppa. That's 35 miles away from Jerusalem. Joppa is the place where what happened? That's where Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, right? So they do this. Verse 8 and 9 tell us the building started in the second year of their return to Jerusalem in the second month. Guess what? That's the same month Solomon started his temple, in the second month, according to 1 Kings uh, 6.1. They appoint the Levites to oversee the work, supervise the work. And in verse 10, finally, they complete the foundation. And what happens next? They worship, right? Verses 10 and 11, they worship. All this is cause for celebration. Chapter 2 had named all those priests and Levites and temple servants and all those people that came back, singers. This is why they came back. This is why, to lead the worship of God, and this is going to be their life. Their, their worship uh, directions are laid down by King David. And uh, there's similar worship. By the way, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, there was similar worship in 1 Chronicles 16. And then look at verse 10. You have the sons of Asaph mentioned. The sons of Asaph. Asaph. In 1 Chronicles 16, 7, it says, David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. Can you imagine your job? Here's your job, Asaph. I want you to give thanks to the Lord. That's your job. That's a good job, right? Good benefits to it. And so that's what he did. They're, his sons, his relatives, or his, his descendants are doing the same thing. So the activity here is to praise the Lord. Look what they do. They sing. They praise. They give thanks. Have you ever thought about this? The idea of worship, of singing and worship and giving thanks has never changed in all these centuries. It's still the same thing. What was established in the Old Testament is still true today. Colossians 3.16, right? New Testament. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly uh, with, it, with all wisdom and, and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. The people exalted the Lord with praise to his name. That's what they did. That was their worship. Don't you love it when we're, we're in here in the service and, the, and, they, and the, we're singing songs together, songs of praise to God? And Ellie's up here strumming the guitar. and I love it to, to see that. I love to hear the praise of God's song. It's pure worship. We're giving thanks to his name, giving praise to his name. <clears throat> that ought to be the desire of all of us here, to give praise to God. And there's a reason. Do you notice verse 11? There's a reason why the people are doing this. Look at verse 11. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Why? They said this, for he is good. We're doing this because he's good. And his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. That's the reason why they're doing The Lord is worthy of a praise because of what? Because of his nature. Because of who he is. Because of, of, of what he's done. He's the Lord, right? He's good. He exercises loving kindness to his people. Even after the Babylonian captivity, he could have just wiped them out and said, forget it. This is a lost project here. He didn't do that. He's still exercising loving kindness to an ungrateful nation much of the time. Nevertheless, he does it. His loving kindness, that word is his faithful covenant love, his loyal love to his people, even after Babylon. And by the way, you'll be glad to know that, this, that we serve the same God as they serve. Still a God who is good. Still a God who exercises loving kindness to his people. Still exercises mercy to us and faithfulness and loyalty. The people are very excited. Notice how excited they are in verse 10 and 11. They're shouting at the top of their lungs. 
Imagine thousands of people giving praise to the Lord. Can you imagine this? Maybe up to 50,000 people are there. They are worshiping. They are shouting. They're praising. There's excitement everywhere. Almost. Almost. Look at verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud voice, and the sound was heard far away, shouting so loud, maybe miles away they could hear, kind of like George Whitfield preaching, miles away they could hear the sound. But apparently not everybody thrilled with this scenario. Why are these old men spoiling the party? What's the problem? Well, we're given a clue here. These guys had lived long enough to see, to see Solomon's temple. Remember that temple? How awesome it was, how magnificent it was. They, they saw that temple. And I think two things are going on here. First of all, I think these guys are crying because they may have been saddened because Solomon's temple had been destroyed due to their own sinfulness. And they may have thought about all that. And that saddened them. But secondly, I think they may have realized that although the only, the, only the foundation has been laid at this point, they may have realized this temple is never going to be what it was. It's never going to match up to that old temple. It will never be that way like it was in the past. I get that reasoning from Haggai 2.3, which we're going to talk about later, Haggai, the book of Haggai, which fits into Ezra. Haggai 2.3 does not fit into the time frame of Ezra 3. It fits into its time frame years later, okay? It's some years later. But I think the problem may have been the same in Ezra 3 as it was later on. <clears throat> Listen to Haggai 2.3. It says this. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you now see it? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? As you compare the temples, and you only have a foundation, but you can see what's going to happen already. You don't have the resources to do this like Solomon had. Is it, is it like nothing to you, this comparison that you're drawing here. They knew it would never be the same. They're crying. So you have this mixed response. You have many shouting for joy, some weeping with a loud voice. <clears throat> it's supposed to be a joyful occasion all around. All around, everybody's supposed to be happy. But some dwelt on the past, and they failed to recognize present blessings. Dwelling on the past. Oh, back in the old days, it used to be like this. Now it's not. Can I give you some advice as we close here in a minute? Don't play the comparison game. I hear this, you hear this every once in a while. I, I, I could be guilty of myself. Don't dwell on the past. Don't wish we were a bigger and better church with more to offer, with more buildings. We, we dream about that parallel building next to this one, right? Don't worry about all that stuff. Don't look for the negatives in a church. Don't discourage those who are focused on the worship of the Lord because you're not happy about something in our church. Why are we here? Why are we here? We're here to worship Christ, right? We're here to exalt Him. We're here to worship the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're here to give him praise. We're here, here to give him thanksgiving. We're here for him. Let's keep that focus where it belongs, right? Squarely on him. Keep the worship of the Lord the number one priority like these people are doing in chapter 3. Don't settle for anything less than that. Number one priority is worship. Worship the king this week. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to know you, that you have, or we should say, that you, we're known by you that you call us to yourself, Lord. We were dead sinners. 
dead in our sins, and you came along and you saved us by your grace because of your mercy and love to us. We pray that we would return thanks to you every day of our life and give you the worship that you pray that you deserve and you only deserve. That this church would be about worshiping God, that this church would be about exalting Christ, that we won't be about ourselves, but about you. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.